go. Um, we're preaching through the, uh, the gospel of Luke this semester here at the house. Um, and we've been looking at all of these places in the gospel where Jesus makes space for something. And the reason that kind of came up, it was uh, kind of Kirsten's idea here. One of our big values as a ministry um, is extending hospitality to each other and to students. That's a huge value for us. And what we define hospitality as is, is making space to meet another making space to meet another. There, there's both a, a learning how to offer that and how to receive that. When I, when I just talk to you, there's a way in which we can be hospitable to one another, not look at our phones the whole time, make eye contact, consider our body language. There's a way when we enter into each other's spaces that we can, we can receive the gift of being let in, and we can also offer space for people to come in, recognizing how important it is to meet each other. And this is something we think about quite a bit. That's why we actually spend quite a few hours like decorating on a Tuesday. And I, I, maybe I've mentioned this here before, but I had one pastor um, actually come in and see um, sort of these lights up here and these wooden things that fall apart all the time. Um, if you want to help build wooden things, we'd love it. Uh, and then like chalkboards on the street. And I, I remember I had a pastor come in here once and he got really sad when he saw all this because he goes, do, do young people need all of this to worship Jesus? Like we can't just get together in a room? And I said, no, no. It took me a second because it threw me off. But after a second... I said, no, they, they don't need—we're not doing this because they need it. We're doing it because it's kind and because it creates, like, a great space for us to meet each other. I mean, God, I don't know if it's about need, man. I don't know. Uh, we, we just think it's kind and hospitable, you know? And, and that's an ethic we press a lot. And Kirsten said, we, we were talking about the Gospel of Luke, and she said, there's all these places in Luke where Jesus makes space to meet people. Let's talk about some of that. So we've been talking about these, these places where Jesus makes space for different things, and we've covered all sorts of different stuff. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Jesus making space for comfort and challenge and invitation, incidentally. He makes space for a lot. But the story we're looking at tonight is uh, one of the most popular ones in the whole Bible, and in the history of the world. Um, but I want to start by saying a little bit about uh, well, my brother and I. So I have a brother who has lived a pretty intense life. Um, some of you might have heard me talk about him before, and I get nervous actually talking about him in case he ever listens to this recordings. Uh, we have a podcast. That's a sales pitch, I guess. I don't know. Uh, anyway, uh, my brother's been homeless. He's a year and a half younger than I am. He's been homeless. He's been picked up by an ambulance in school for tripping on acid. He's been in gangs. He's been shot out with automatic weapons. He's been hospitalized for fights. He's been arrested multiple times. He was a registered sex offender for almost 20 years. Um, he was estranged from our family. He spent a ton of time in jail, off and on. Recently, um, I got to spend a little time with him two weeks ago, um, and, I, and I just adore him. And we were talking about work. He does some construction. I don't know if you know this, I'm a pastor. Um, and we were talking about the value of work. And he said, direct quote, he said, Jason, you're going to get a lot more attaboys when you get to heaven than I will. Um, and you know why he said it. He said it because of my job. Because of the ways that I've climbed uh, the white privilege and patriarchal ladders out of poverty. Because our society lets me put the word reverend before my name. You're going to get a lot more attaboys than I will when you get to heaven, Jason. And my heart just like broke, right? Because he doesn't know. He doesn't know the gospel. The good news, and so often, he doesn't know this either, that so often he's a lot closer to being home with God than I am. As for me, I'm a pretty classic older brother. I can tell you all these things I've done wrong. Like I got a 3.6 instead of a 4.0. Like, I stole from a grocery store when I was in fourth grade, and I still get embarrassed to tell anybody about it. 
Like, I had sex with people before I was married. There were, like, people I loved a lot and dated for a long time, which doesn't make it okay, but I did that. And I can tell you things that I did, like, wrong. That time I lied seven weeks ago. Whatever. But my mom, my friends, my wife, they're going to say, you, you always do everything right. <laughs> my wife won't say that all the time, but, but she does say that a lot. Uh, and part of the reason that I can tell you all of the ways that I've messed up is because it really matters to me. It really matters. I, I, I remember stealing something from a grocery store in fourth grade, and it haunts me sometimes. And the reason why is I get terrified that I'm going to show up to heaven and I won't get a lot of attaboys when I stand face to face with Jesus. And when I realize this, my heart breaks because it means I don't know the gospel. The scripture we're looking at tonight just messes with all of this. With the younger brother and with the older. With who's in and who's out. And, I, and no one in this room is safe from this story. No one. So let's pray and we'll get into the scripture. Father, we pray tonight um, for my brother and for me and for every one of us in this room that you are inviting to come in. And we either don't believe you or we refuse you and we're offended by you. We ask for your spirit to have his way in us for you to help us believe and to soften our hearts and our minds. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts and our thoughts in this room be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. He who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus had just spoken to a great crowd. What says crowds, plural, actually, about the cost of following him as a disciple, which means a student. If you want to be like me and learn from me and follow me, there is a tremendous cost to this. And Jesus had just had a clarion sort of teaching about this. And after telling them what it means to follow them, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. And immediately after he says that, we are told this. Would you put up that slide, Ashley? The first one, which is uh, where immediately after he says, he who has ears, let him hear, it says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. We're all drawing near to hear him. He who has ears, let him hear. When we read tax collectors and sinners, think those who've lived wild lives. Those who aren't following the rules, those who break religious rules, those people, the sinners, they were drawing near. Why? Well, to hear him. That's why. When Jesus invites the crowds to hear, it's the sinners who draw near to him. And dining with them in this mixed crowd of two communities who don't like to mix, a bunch of Pharisees and scribes grumbled. And when we read Pharisees and scribes, we should be thinking about the religious elite, the, the do-gooders, the people that um, got a 3-6 and, and complain about it in high school, the ones that we really never want to hang out with. Uh, and they grumble saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. And they're angry at this. And in response to this, presumably they're at some dinner table with this whole crowd around him, Jesus tells them some parables, some stories, to illustrate a point. He tells a few different ones and he kind of circles in on this point on the third with the story of two sons and their father. 
Sometimes it's referred to as the story of the prodigal son, which is totally misleading because there's actually two sons in the story. And there's much more than just something about this one son. This man had two, not one. And the younger son in this story, which we read earlier, it's in Luke 15 if you missed the reference, and I encourage you to, to be familiar with this in your Bibles. Um, the younger son in this story, he went to his father and he asked his father for the share of his inheritance. It would be his one day. And in that culture, when the father died, the land and the possessions of the family would have been divided amongst these two sons. And the son is asking for his share. He's not asking for his brother's share, he's asking for his share. But when he asks it right now while the father's still alive, it essentially is communicating, I wish you were dead. That's essentially what it's saying. I wish you were dead. Matter of fact, the word that we read in our Bibles in Luke 15 that, that is translated probably in your translation as property is actually the same word for life. Bios, where we get like biology from, that kind of thing, right? Like, let me take my portion of your life now. That's what he asks his father. And you know what the father does? Doesn't kick him out of the house. Doesn't say, after I'm dead. He gives his younger son what he asks for. He divides his life, his property, between his sons. This, to me, is one of the terrifying and most humbling things about our relationship with God, is that he gives us what we want so often. Many days later, after the son received his inheritance, this younger son gathers all that he has and he turns it into cash. He liquidates it. Not leaving like any roots or connections. And he tears off to the other side of the world. And you and I know why he left. To be free. He left to be free. To do what he wants. To take what was his and decide how he wants to live his own life on his own terms. It didn't occur to him that he did nothing to earn his inheritance. That that was a gift from his father. It didn't occur to him that our lives are always lived under some terms. And so thinking he would be free, he found the farthest place he could go. And he did there what you and I would do. Or maybe what some of us have done. He spent everything. And in that country, just as the money ran out, a famine occurred. And so it wasn't just hard for him, but it was hard for everyone in that place. And he was in need, no longer able to survive from the gift of his inheritance, nor the gift of strangers in a strange land. And so he went out looking for work, and he found some at a pig farm. A place that no upstanding and respectful Hebrew would ever work. But he had killed off his old life to find a new one, so who knows if he even considered himself Hebrew anymore. And there he was in his new life, his new life that he took off halfway across the world to find. Knee deep in mud, feeding pigs, and one day he paused, hungry and alone, and he just looked at the food that the pigs were eating, and he wished and he was fed alongside them. He thought to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough to eat? And here I am starving. He is done. He has hit bottom. And he wants to go home because he's hungry. So he says, I know what I'll do. I'll go to my father. And he works up a speech, which every single person in this room has done many times. When we don't think we're going to be received well, this is like a normal gut reaction. We start working up uh, some lines, some speech. 
He says, I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called a son. Just treat me as one of your hired servants. Now hear this, hear this. The younger son's great return home, it doesn't start with like a huge moral victory. He's just hungry. He just wants to eat. And that's enough. That's enough for him to turn home. And so hungry and lonely and barefoot and poor, he makes his way back. The whole way rehearsing what he would say to his father when he saw him. And in here next is one of the greatest lines in all of the stories in all of the world. Would you put that other line up, Ashley? While he was still a long way off. While he was still a long way off. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Would you put that picture up, that, that painting up? Um, a, a former student of the house, one of, my, one of my really close friends in town, drew this for another friend of ours. This is a, a, a rendering, um, his interpretation of the father hearing news that his son is on the horizon. And he's busting out the door. He doesn't even put his coat on inside. He's busting out the door running to throw his coat on to go meet his son on the horizon. I've... Uh, this may not surprise you too much. I've just stood in front of this thing and wept like multiple times at my friend's house while they're like making dinner. Uh, it's super awkward. Uh, and, uh, but but this, is, this, this image is wild. As this son's rehearsing lines, we, we, are, we are led to believe Jesus encourages us, to, encourages us to think about this father who's been waiting with eyes trained to the horizon for his son who might one day come home. And when he glimpses him off in the horizon, he tears off to meet him. Everything about this is reckless. And th that's what prodigal means, by the way. Reckless. And the prodigal son is embraced here by a prodigal father, recklessly tearing off across the horizon to meet his son, right? Hiking up his robe and sprinting through the field. And when he meets him, we read that he embraced him. And the text literally means that he fell upon his neck. That's what it means. That might sound super strange. Let me try to explain it to you in a way that's slightly less strange, but I hope you get it. Uh, that he ran up and fell upon his neck and kissed him. This is what I do when I haven't seen my kids for a while. When I see them and, and, and I pull in the driveway and they're already coming out the door, so you can kind of put them in the image of the father here, I guess, I don't know. But, but I start running toward them or moving quickly toward them because I'm older now and so I walk mostly. Um, <laughs> Um, when I grab them, often my son is usually the first one there because he likes, he's the older brother and he wants to win all the time. Uh, and, and so he's usually the first one there and I'll pick him up and I'll grab him and I'll bury my face in his neck and I'll kiss his neck and I'll kiss his cheek and I'll kiss his head and I'll, I, everything. I'm just burying myself in him. I missed you, buddy. And I love you. And he fell upon this, his son's neck and he embraced him and he kissed him. So the, that's what Jesus is telling us in the story. This is what I, anyway, this is what the father does. There's no propriety here. He's not worried about what's respectful. He's not worried about lecturing. He's not worried about any other thing, just a, an embrace. What matters first and foremost is this embrace. Reckless affection for this lost son who's come home. And the son pulls back at some point and tries to tell the father what he'd been rehearsing this whole time home. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Interestingly, he doesn't say anything about becoming a servant here. And perhaps, perhaps it's because the father's affection and movement toward him had already begun to melt his heart. I don't know. Maybe it's because the father cut him off, turning around and yelling at the servants to quickly bring the best robe, 
and a ring and some shoes. The robe to cover him, and if it's the best one, it would have been his. Bring him my robe. And a ring which probably had some family seal on it and would have been a sign of his membership in the family. And shoes for his feet because he's barefoot. And a good father would care about things like that. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let's eat and let's celebrate for my son was dead and he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. The father who'd already divided, like he already divided his life and given a portion of it to his younger son, was now giving that same son everything else. His robe, his rings, his shoes, the fattened calf, which would have been saved for the greatest of celebrations each year. All of it for the son who squandered everything else he'd been given. The son who, for all intents and purposes, said, I wish you were dead. The father tears off across the horizon when the son is still a long way off to give him all the rest of his life. And if we can identify with the younger brother for just a moment, our hearts will be melted along with His. To believe that we could be received again. To believe that we could be welcomed home. To believe that we could have a seat at the table even after we've told everyone there that we want nothing to do with them anymore. But it's good to remember at this point that Jesus is telling this story while He's sitting around a table too. And in this story, He's telling there isn't just one brother, there are two. And the older brother was in the field while all this emoting was going on between the father and the, son, and the younger brother. And just like an older brother, because the family dynamics have not changed much in the last couple thousand years, he was working all day, and as he came near the house, he heard singing and dancing and saw the orange glow of fire and he, and, and through the windows, and he smelled food, and he asked one of the servants, hey, what's going on there? And the servant said, your brother's come back, and your father killed the fattened calf and is throwing a big party for him. Come on in. And you know what the brother's response was? He was angry. And he refused to go in. And in a strange twist, the younger, reckless son was in the home celebrating with the father while the older, responsible one was outside in the cold, estranged from the family. And if our hearts melt at a father who would tear off toward the horizon to meet one son, they should melt here too. For while the party's going on, the father leaves it to come outside and meet the other one. Some of us have a very, very hard time accepting, embracing, even thinking well at all about a younger brother or sister kind of person. We should see Jesus moving toward them in love and compassion. And some of us have a really hard time with the older brother and sister. And we should see Jesus moving toward them in compassion. And the father bleeds with, uh, bleeds. He, he, well, interestingly enough, the son does. But we'll get to that. The father pleads with the older son to come inside. Come inside. Over and over again, he says, come inside, come inside. And the older son says, look. Seething in anger, he won't even call him father. He just says, Look. I've been serving you all these years. I've never disobeyed you. And you haven't even given me one freaking goat that I might celebrate with my friends. When the son of yours that rejected you, that said he wished you were dead, when the son of yours, notice he doesn't call him my brother. When my brother comes home, he doesn't say that. He won't call his father father. He won't call his brother brother. When the son of yours who devoured your life and squandered what you gave him with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. The father says, son. 
don't miss the grace even in that word. Jesus doesn't waste words. The father says, son. The man who won't call his father father and won't call his brother brother in the first word of his response, the father welcomes him back into relationship again. Son, you are always with me. And all that I, all that you, I have is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And, and I, I think for some of us, there is a way to read this story as if it's better to be the older brother. As if it's, if it's the good son and, and the prodigal son. If that's what the story is about, there's a good son and there's a prodigal son. But that's not the story Jesus tells, friends. In this story, the prodigal son has come home and the older son is outside. And if you hear this right, in the words of one pastor, Jesus in this parable is not warming our hearts, he's shattering our categories. The older son isn't better or good. He isn't the one that the father wants the younger one to be like. Why can't you be like your older brother? That's not this parable. That's not this story. Is it better to be responsible than irresponsible? Sure. Sure. Is it better to not sin than to sin? Yep, definitely. But the older brother wasn't doing these things out of love for his father. He was doing them in order to get what's his. In order to establish himself, in order to control the world, here's how it looks. If I'm good enough, then maybe my dad will celebrate me. Or if I try harder than everyone else and don't screw up, maybe I won't get kicked out. You see, friends, neither brother was free. One was enslaved by his actions and habits, the other enslaved by his self-righteousness and heart. Neither was free. One plays a short game with dad, the other plays a long game both just using him in the end. And so many times this parable gets played out as a meditation on the prodigal son. But the main audience for the story is actually the older one. All those Pharisees sitting around grumbling at the table, furious that Jesus would accept the sinner. I remember in high school when my brother got bees one quarter or one semester or whatever, and we all went out to ice cream. And I was pissed off. I was so mad because I got all A's and one B and barely anybody blinked. You always get A's, Jason. We love you. That was the response I got. But your brother has never gotten B's. That's why we have to celebrate him. And I could not, friends, I could not hear any logic in that. I heard no compassion in that. I was angry and all I could see was that there was a kind of injustice going on in the world. If you or an older brother or sister, you know what this is like. We've kept all these rules, we've worked hard, we've obeyed and not strayed away from you, God. And these people who are reckless and foolish, Father, you welcome them to the same table. And so we're angry. Because our obedience and our upright lives do not elevate us above others and gain greater affection from you, and that's not fair. That's not fair. Praise God, he is not only deal injustice. It's a real temptation for me to be angry. I'm, I'm being very honest with you right now. It's a very real, I don't need anybody, to, I'm not feeling super insecure as I say this right now, so we'll praise God for this moment that's about to come. Uh, I don't need anybody like trying to come at me with this later, but I'm just gonna be honest with you about something right now. It's a real temptation for me to be angry that my brother is way more likable than I am. 
He's stronger than I am. He's more handsome than I am. He's a much better athlete than I am. He's better with kids than I am. He's funnier than I am. And rather than celebrate those things, and, if, and I think I have a pretty good read on people, I really don't think I'm, I guess with the handsome thing, people have different tastes, okay? But all the rest of the stuff, that's like, that's not arguable. It's not arguable. And that one probably shouldn't be either. Like, I, I'm not speaking out of my insecurity here. I'm telling you, my brother has a pretty remarkable set of gifts. And rather than celebrate those things and affirm him, I often am tempted to get angry because I've seen him waste those gifts on things I've hunted so hard for. So I'd be in the driveway shooting 300 free throws and 100 three-pointers every night for months because I was terrible at basketball. And my brother thinks, that sounds fun. And he goes out there and starts. And I was so mad. I was so mad. Do you know what that's like to work really hard at something? And someone else who didn't work as hard gets what you want? To study for a test for days and you get a C. And your roommate who, who said, yeah, I studied for like 30 minutes. Like, I got an A. Isn't that crazy? To maybe to, this is, this is serious stuff. We deal with this, right? To muscle through. Some of you are doing this right now. Some of you are muscling through adolescence into adulthood with chastity. Only to see a very promiscuous friend get engaged to be married. And you're like, what the? <laughs> you sign up. Yeah, I, didn't, I didn't cuss because I'm an older brother. That's what happens. Okay. Um, to si- some, some of you will sign up for extra responsibilities and work really hard behind the scenes at something like this. At your local church, at your job, in the classroom, at home. Only to see someone else get recognized who didn't put in nearly the effort that you did. And when this happens, aren't many of us prone to get angry and to think about how unfair it all is? Okay, listen, one lie that we're prone to believe is that we can out God's grace. That's one lie we're prone to believe. That we can out God's grace. That we can screw up so much that we are beyond help. And this, friends, is indeed a lie. For while you are still far away, we have a God who is like a father tearing off across the horizon to meet you. You can never outsend the grace of God. Though you can reject him, you are never too far from him. That's a lie. But there's another one. That we can guarantee our way in through sheer effort. Or at least make sure we don't get kicked out by being good. And this too is a lie. Your righteousness, friends, does not gain you a seat at the table. And if your own white-knuckled righteousness is all that matters to you, it actually may be the very thing that's keeping you out in the cold. The father, and hear this, the father had to go outside to meet both brothers. He had to go outside to meet both brothers. My brother does not know the truth that my seat at the table in the kingdom of God is won by Christ and it's given freely to me by grace and love. My brother does not know that. He doesn't know that there has never been a party thrown for me which will be bigger than the party thrown for him. He doesn't believe it. He believes his prodigal ways have cut him off from the possibility of sonship. So maybe sometimes he thinks he can work as a servant. Maybe he can serve me at the family table, but he can't sit there. And he needs to know the love of the Father who goes out after him. And all it will take is my brother turning to come home, even if it's just because he's hungry. I know the eyes of the Father are trained on the horizon after him. And for every younger brother and sister in this room, 
And for every older brother and sister in this room, you need to know that the Father will come outside for you too, but, but this is problematic for us because the problem is it, it's not at first a very comforting message that we need to hear. It's a challenging one. It's the message that we're missing the whole freaking point. The older brother has been with the Father the whole time, eating with him at every meal, sharing in life every day, but he acts like he's enslaved. His younger brother comes home and there's no room in his cold heart to receive him in joy and go in and sit by the fire. The invitation for us is to join in the celebration and to come inside. Jesus would say he came for the sick, and to the sick, he's comforting and healing, but to those who don't know they're sick, you know that can be offensive. If you, older brothers and sisters, want to share in the kingdom of God, then you must lift your eyes up from your own self-righteousness and look to the needs of others just like the one you claim to follow, who poured his life out for others. All right, look, none of us, none of us are, I mean, I've, I've framed some of this by, by suggesting I'm an older brother and I have a brother who's a younger brother and teasing out the story Jesus tells with two brothers, but the truth is none of us are cleanly one or the other of these things. Both of these stories riddle our lives. And what we all need is for the Father to come out and get us. That's what we need. And tonight we're going to be reminded of that in the central way that the church throughout history has always been reminded of that by sharing a communion table together.